you know, people will try and say that, oh, you know, we put you in a different shaft and using the different shaft characteristics, that's going to change things. The difference that that makes is very small in general, and it's very inconsistent both from player to player and short term to long term. Today, we're joined by Adam Charon. Adam is a club maker and club fitter who has the YouTube channel Mobile Club Maker Golf and Elite Fit Golf. Adam takes his YouTube channels and dives into questions that amateurs have, teach them useful tricks, including how to measure your lie angle without having a lie board and why a lie board might not be so useful, as well as other things like how to regrip clubs only using compressed air. Adam is a wealth of knowledge, and we really enjoyed this conversation with him. For people who don't know about you, um, let's start just with your background. One, uh, how you got into golf, just in general, playing golf, et cetera. But two, for the people that don't know, uh, you have a YouTube page, Mobile Club Maker Golf. You also have Elite Fit Golf, which is something you've opened. I want we want to hear more about that. So tell us, one, just how you got into golf, and then two, how you got into club fitting, club making, everything in that area. Okay. Well, first off, yeah, thanks for having me today. Um I've been playing golf for my whole life, basically, since I was, you know, six years old, something like that. My dad would uh, take me out to the golf course with him. So it's been part of my life for a very long time. Uh, after college, I, I got a job working for Golf Smith, which probably a fair number of people still remember, even though they've gone out of business now a few years back. But uh, they were a company who was big into not just golf retail, but also club building. And, you know, they had a big following with, with club builders and they made their own components and, and all this sort of thing. So started working with them, learned club building sort of through that. And so that's sort of where my club building knowledge came from and then got out of that, got into some other things. Um, and then just eventually started doing that again, uh, doing more club building, uh, reaching out to, to the Emory University golf coach and said, you know, look, I'm, I'm a club builder. And so if you guys, if the team needs anything, you know, I'd be happy to help you guys out. So doing that and then just sort of going from there. And then I started the YouTube channel basically sort of because I realized that there weren't a lot of people who knew how to do this stuff as far as building, repairing, you know, even the simple stuff, obviously regripping, there's nothing overly complicated about that. Although still, I think most people are still sort of in the dark about something as simple as that, but anything beyond that was, was basically, there was a small number of people who really knew how to do it. And the number kept getting smaller because most of them were older. So that was kind of where the YouTube channel started, uh, showing people how to build, how to repair golf clubs and, uh, and yeah, it sort of went from there. That is cool. When it came to like starting the YouTube channel, did you think, hey, this is going to get pretty big and and now it's large enough and you have enough of a lar large enough following that you're able to have a business on top of that. You're able to open up Elite Fit Golf. 
was it something that you saw happening or how did, how did that progression happen for you? And when did you realize, Hey, people are, people are paying attention to what I'm saying. Like I have, I'm putting interesting stuff out there. When did you die? When did you really get into that? Yeah. YouTube is a, is an interesting beast. It, it is, you know, it's so massive. You just, you don't even appreciate how massive it is because, you know, it sort of focuses you into what you are interested in. So I forget what the number is, but the number of hours of content that's uploaded every day, I mean, it's, it's millions upon millions of hours. So when you think of it that way, it's, it's kind of overwhelming to think how anyone could ever find, you know, your little, your little piece, your little, your little island there. So when I started out, honestly, I don't even remember exactly what I kind of thought would happen. I just started putting out some of these videos and I mean, it was, it was slow going, you know, to start it. I mean, it was, you know, one view a day, maybe that kind of thing. And you're just like, you know, you look at it and you're like, well, is it even worth doing? I mean, you know, you get five people who maybe watch a video in a week and you're just thinking, you know, I put a bunch of hours into this and no one really seems to care. So, you know, I kind of went through that. This was before COVID and just realized that, you know, gee, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. I mean, you look at some of those big YouTube channels, the Rick Shields or the, uh, you know, Mr. Short Game or, or some of the different teaching ones. And they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And I'm sitting there with, you know, 30 subscribers. And so it's a little, it's a little disheartening when you start out. I think, I think a lot of people probably quit and give up pretty early on. Um, but yeah, once COVID happened and I said, you know what, I've got extra time. I'm going to start trying to be more regimented and trying to increase the amount of content, um, and the quality of it, you know, trying to be better with better camera, better audio, things like that. And that's kind of when it started to slowly pick up and then it really helps, I think, if you have that one video, if you have one video that people kind of latch onto, that was what I noticed. I had one video where I talked about uh, how adjustable hosel golf clubs work, the specifically drivers, but it, for any of them. But I realized that there was really nothing on YouTube that was really covering this, what I thought was the right way. And, and very, very few people understood just the basic mechanics of what was going on, how it works, why it works. And so I did that video and that was the first one that actually sort of, you know, picked up enough momentum and started pulling in more subscribers. And so that, that's kind of where things started moving in a more positive direction where I said, well, yeah, maybe this, you know, maybe I stick with this for a while and, and, and see what comes of it. You kind of mentioned, um, this earlier, but what are some of the most common mistakes that you see made in club building specifically? There are two different, I feel like there's two different extremes. So you've got on one side, you've got people who are just very sort of haphazard in what they're doing and aren't measuring properly. You know, the old adage of you should measure twice and cut once, that kind of thing, and or don't care about you know, waiting or, or all these different things. So you've got that side, but then I think just as problematic are people on the other extreme who are so laser focused in on trying to hit 
just, you know, tiny little precise specifications that you, you kind of lose, you know, you're never going to be, you're never going to be perfect. And in the game of golf, obviously, this is a very imperfect game. So, you know, they spend all this time trying to make sure that the swing weights or the lengths or the frequency of the shafts or all these different things are, are so precise and they sort of lose the bigger picture of, you know, what, what's really important, what's, what's not going to be as important. Yeah. Well, those things that really at the end of the day, the whole point of the club is to drive performance. And so if the club is, the club might feel some way, it might, uh, look some way, et cetera. But if it's not improving your performance, then there's no point, then you really haven't done anything. You've just spent a lot of time doing nothing. Uh, that, exactly. that makes sense as far as, as far as like some of those early videos, um, that you put up, what I'm interested in mainly here is like, what did you find that people were interested in that uh, they didn't know already? Like I've seen some of your videos about, Hey, here's how to regrip a club without, uh, using any sort of, uh, or with, but by using, uh, compressed air, which is something that prior to seeing that video, I had no clue was a possibility. The industry norm as I had understood it was, you know, uh, you cut the old one off, uh, removes the tape, rewrap some tape, put on some solution, shake it up, force it on there as best you can. And then, uh, don't move it for, uh, an hour or two or something like that. Uh, what, what have you found? And like specifically some of those like smaller things that, uh, you found are interesting, like, what, what have you found that's useful to people? Yeah. So, you know, my audience obviously, and that was part of, I think the issue starting out was, you know, if you have a general equipment, let's say golf YouTube channel, yes, you have more competition, but you also have a lot more potential viewers. What I was doing was obviously niche. It was, you know, specific to people who are interested in wanting to do this. But anyway, so I realized that, you know, I've sort of got a couple different audiences on my channel. I've got people who are specifically there for the very technical club building stuff. And then I've got people who are, in some cases, maybe interested in sort of dipping their toe in, or in some cases, they're less interested in that and more interested on the fitting side, because I did some of those videos too. So some of the early videos I did uh, had to do with, you know, things like figuring out your lie angle on your own, uh, figuring out the right club length. Those were the videos I found that did well to start with because the actual club building videos were always slower. Um, now I have some that have quite a few views on them now where I go sort of step-by-step step through the process of building a club or reshafting or something like that. But those videos are always sort of a very smooth, gradual, uh, slope on them. Uh, the ones where I do more stuff with, you know, fitting related things that you can do yourself at home versus having to have a professional help you with it again, be it lie angle, be it figuring out length or different things like that. Those videos, I feel like definitely seem to, uh, move a little bit faster, have a few more views right off the bat. And so that was, that was one thing I noticed. And then, like you said, the videos where you do something that basically, you know, if you find something that people are interested in and present it in a new way, like that 
compressed air. And there were other, there were other people doing compressed air videos. Um, compressed air I knew about for a long time. And my problem was always that, you know, I thought, well, you're going to need a big compressor. It's big, it's heavy, it's super loud. It's, you know, it's obnoxious to deal with. And so, you know, that's where I had the idea of using that tire inflator, which is very small, compact and, you know, inexpensive. And so that was one of those videos that, that definitely, you know, it, it, it hit that right sweet spot basically. And, and it's gotten, it's gotten a lot of views and, you know, if I knew how to pick every video that well, then I'd, I'd be doing a lot better. It's just sort of, sometimes I'll do a video and I'll think, oh yeah, this is going to be, this thing is going to take off like a rocket and it, and it just sits there and, you know, it doesn't really do anything. So I, I am clearly not a YouTube expert as far as predicting, uh, what's going to work and what's not. It's just sort of, I just try and produce videos that I think my audience will, you know, get something out of and hopefully they do. That's perfect. And the reason I'd ask that question about what people were interested in, because it kind of dives into the next one I had, which is like the practicalities of it. You said, okay, like people are interested in, uh, how to measure their own lie angle, how to measure their own, um, loft, et cetera. One, if you're, if you're a golfer, why is that something that's important to you? How, how does that impact as far as like, uh, your setup, like your whole club, your whole club setup, how does it affect that? And then also, I don't know if you, if you can do that, if you can tell us without like having it in front of you. Um, but can you describe to us like a way that someone might, you know, check their lie, check their loft? Cause I know for me, I had a set of clubs back when I was back right before college, I, I got injured and, uh, with a stress fracture and long, long story short, it had nothing to do with the clubs, but just like how my hand had, uh, was broken because I had played so much golf, uh, and not rested. Similarly, the shafts of my clubs had bent, uh, by about four degrees. So, uh, my seven iron was down four degrees. Like the shaft was, I didn't even notice cause I wasn't good at looking at things, but you look down the, down the shaft and it was, it was curved. So tell us a little <laughs> bit more about why people care, how it affects things. And then also how they might check something like that themselves. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you it's, it's surprising just as a quick side note, how many people have steel shafts that have some sort of pronounced, uh, bend in them. And, uh, you know, in some cases it just happens if they are old, uh, shafts that eventually just sort of works their way and they start to get bent down stronger. Uh, in some cases, you know, certain kinds of golfers, obviously stronger golfers, are more likely to have that happen or hitting off a lot of mats versus grass. Uh, in some cases, certain shafts, honestly, the quality control has not been very good. And so there are certain shafts out there on the market that are notorious for this sort of thing. Uh, but to get back to your original question, as far as what's how you would do it or why it's important, we'll just do loft and lie. Loft is very, I mean, obviously loft is very important when it comes to you know, distance when it comes to trajectory, it's, it's the most important thing. Uh, and so, you know, I did a video on the elite fit golf channel or a couple of videos so far where I look at what happens if I start bending the loft stronger on my irons. And I've looked at, I've done it with a six iron, I've done it with a nine iron and sort of bending them down in two degree increments and trying to figure out 
you know, where's that, where's the sweet spot of I can bend them to a certain point and get a benefit as far as a benefit being more distance. Um, but then at what point does it, you know, do they become less uh, functional, less hittable? And so if we're talking about lofts, I think the easiest way for a golfer to figure it out is really just to sort of, you know, either go through a gapping session uh, if you have the ability or just, you know, on the course, pay attention to, you know, if I'm hitting my eight iron, say 150 yards and I'm hitting my seven iron, 165, but then I'm hitting my six iron, 165 also, or 168. Obviously, there can be different reasons for that, but a big possibility is that, well, possibly that six iron loft is no longer in the right spot, or maybe the seven iron loft is not in the right spot. So just sort of going through your bag and figuring out, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what the actual numbers are in the club. That that really doesn't make any difference. It's It's when you get out on the golf course and you start hitting those clubs, are you hitting the right yardages and are you filling in all those gaps? that you need to. So that would be my, my best advice as far as loft goes. And if you feel like there is a problem, then you go and you find a, a good club builder uh, who can actually measure those, who can look at them and figure out, yes, it's, it's, you know, the club needs to be adjusted or, or maybe, you know, maybe the club in theory, the numbers are all matching up, but you just aren't hitting them that way. And so, you know, we, we bend them, we bend them to fit the golfer. You know, we don't, we're not building clubs in a vacuum. You have to make them work for the golfer. So even if, you know, if that means your six iron and your seven iron have one degree of loft difference, but you hit them, you know, you hit them where you want to hit them. Well, that's, what's important. When we talk about lie angle, lie angle is one of those things that's very easy to, to figure out on your own. And a lot of people, everyone sort of has, I think, if you've played golf long enough, everyone knows what a lie board is, which, you know, you used to go to a fitting or you go to try out clubs and it's this hard piece of plastic and you would hit golf balls off it. And then they would look at the sole of the club and sort of figure out, oh, is it coming in with the toe down? Or is it coming in with the toe up? And you would bend the club accordingly off of that. And in some cases that worked, in some cases it really didn't. It could give you some faulty information depending on your swing path and, and things like that. So the easiest way to do it is the, and I've, I've done videos on this as well, but it's just known as, as, a, as a line test or a Sharpie test, or, uh, which is basically you draw a vertical line on a golf ball with, with a Sharpie or with a dry erase marker. And then you set up the ball with the line perpendicular to the ground, pointing in the opposite direction of your target. So the line is facing your club head at address. And you just hit the ball. And what you're looking for is if the club has the correct lie angle, you should see that line be straight up and down, right? But if the lie angle is incorrect, well, then that line is either going to be pointing off one direction or the other because as the club comes in, if the club is coming in toe down and you hit the ball, the line is going to show up uh, pointing up sort of towards you. And if it's the other way, then it's going to be pointing the other way. And you can basically take that based on how much that angle is and you can figure out how much you need to bend the golf club. But that's a very simple, straightforward and very precise way to do it. You don't need, you know, you don't need to get on track man or, you know, you don't need me to get out my GC quad and, and measure that, 
using cameras, it, it's, it's completely accurate. And as long as you have, you know, as long as you get that line straight up and down and you're on a flat surface to start with, it's extremely accurate. That is cool. As far as when we're talking about lie angle, let's say I came to you and my lie angle was, uh, at, at impact was four degrees upright, not as far as the measurement of the club, but as far as how I was coming into and hitting the ball. What kind of variances would you expect to see from someone? Everybody I know has different adaptations and how the club interacts with the ground uh, can be different, but what sort of variances would you expect if for someone who had that sort of setup? And then beyond that, as far as when we, you're talking also something interesting about lofts, like, you know, if there's a difference between your seven iron and six iron, it's one degree, that's okay. As long as it does what you want, is that how... I know like you take someone like Bryson, they have, Bryson has like what people might call loft jacked, uh, his clubs. And like, there's a debate I imagine kind of on it, uh, whether warranted or not about what's going on. And so, and his response would be, well, ignoring the naming of the club, like he'd say, Oh, my seven iron, it, it comes in like a seven iron. So, uh, yeah, it's lofted like a five iron, but it lands like a seven iron. And for most people that, that isn't something that matters. So we don't need to worry about like, oh, whether it actually should be called a seven or not iron or not. What I'm more interested in is would do you see that in a lot of sets that you're dealing with with a lot of players? Like, you know, I really need to change off these stock lofts and maybe get a club to fly a little differently or like a little lower this sort of loft jacking. Okay, yeah. So uh first question talking about lie angles. Uh and I think I think those lie boards that I referenced in the beginning put in people's mind or maybe just a lot of the old fitting people back when they were doing a lot of that gave this sort of misconception about what's really important here when we're talking about lie angle. The important thing about lie angle is really less to do with how the ball comes into the, I mean, how the club comes into the turf, right? I think people think about it like, oh, if it's too flat then the toe comes into the ground and, and drags and it makes you you know hang it open or something like that and it's really not that's really not how it works in most cases um unless you get down into your wedges because all the other clubs in your bag you know you're hitting ball and then ground the only time where the golf club actually is making contact with the ground before it makes contact with the ball is when you get into the higher lofted wedges because they have to sort of get underneath the ball to get to that right point on the face. But the really important thing when we're talking about lie angle, what it does is anytime you have a, a club, an iron, a wood, anything, a putter, as you move that lie angle, as that face changes in the lie, there is a uh, directional change that corresponds to that. So what ends up happening is if your lie angle is too flat and the toe is what we would call too far down, it opens the club face up, everything else being equal. This assumes, you know, assuming we're in a vacuum, we're not modifying or adjusting anything during our swing to compensate. But if you just start with that and the club is too far flat, it's going to leave the club face open. And likewise, if it's too upright, it's going to leave it closed. So what ends up happening is if your line goes not right, your start lines are going to be left and right or right of where you think they should be, even though you may be perfectly lined up, perfectly square, the club face may be perfectly square to your target, but because of that 
because that angle of your lie is off, it changes the angle, it changes the direction of the face. And the thing that people, the other part of this that people don't always realize is as the club face gets flatter and flatter, meaning as we go from short irons to long irons to your woods, that influence becomes less and less. So the lie angle on a driver is far less impactful as far as your start line goes versus it is on your wedges or your short irons. Because when you have more loft, any sort of change in the lie is much more dramatic as far as your initial start line. Now, you do also, not to get too technical, but you also bring spin into the equation, obviously. And the longer you hit the ball, the longer the ball's in the air, the more spin, you know, you can get more dispersion that way as well. But in general, you know, I think a lot of people worry about the lie angle on their drivers and the change that, you know, like you said, you said four degrees. The change that you end up seeing if you have a driver that's four degrees off on lie angle, when we're talking about the actual uh, face direction is, I'm trying to remember the exact number. I've done all the math. I've done this in the video, but it's like, it's less than a quarter of a degree off for four degrees of a lie angle change. So what, and if you span that out to say 300 yards, it basically means, you know, five to 10 yards offline, depending on the spin, things like that. So it's a very small amount. Now, when you get into the wedges, obviously, then it's a much more exaggerated amount because that initial angle is going to be, the initial direction is going to be greater. So that's why I think it's especially important to make sure your irons, your wedges are, are, you know, dialed in for that. Perfect. And then, sorry, and can, as far as the loft jacking, et cetera, so, sorry that oh. uh, I asked such a long question there. As far as the loft jacking, et cetera, um, what do you see on that front as far as like when you're fitting people? Are you oftentimes messing around with those lofts more to create good gapping when you're doing your gapping sessions? Yeah, I would, I would say the lofts are, you know, if you were talking about trying to change ball flight in any fitting application loft is always going to be the biggest impact you know people will try and say that oh you know we put you in a different shaft and using the different shaft characteristics that's going to change things the difference that that makes is very small in general and it's very inconsistent both from player to player and short term to long term when you talk about lofts it is it's always impactful. It, it always changes regardless of the golfer. And it's not something that is a short-term, long-term uh, issue. So, you know, I get people all the time who, who are wanting to sort of change the lofts. And it's not necessarily loft jacking that I see across an entire set. It's more trying to figure out, again, trying to figure out the gapping and figure out you know, especially when you get into the longer clubs and you maybe have a utility iron or some sort of hybrid or something, it's trying to figure out what is the right club, uh, you know, to hit, to hit that number that's in between your, you know, your last longest standard iron versus a utility club, a hybrid, something like that. So that's kind of, that's where I, where I see it more. And, and, you know, I, I deal more with better, golfers in general, more amateur, you know, starting golfers. Again, it, you know, 
loft jacking, it's just one of those things where, you know, doesn't matter what club you say you're hitting when you hit it. It's, it's whatever gets the right result and gets the right distance and hopefully gets it on the green. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a pitching wedge, it's a pitching wedge. If it's an eight iron, it's an eight iron. And hopefully, you know, I'm sure some people are going to be uh, too vain uh, to want to admit to having to hit an eight iron, say if they're, if they're golf buddies or hitting a, a nine or a wedge. And so they might seek out more distance that way. But again, at the end of the day, I can remember plenty of golfers who were a hundred times better than me, who, you know, basically hit it 200 yards off the tee, 200, 200, 200, sink the putt and end up shooting, you know, even par rounds every time. So, so I had a, an experience recently uh, where there was an, an older man who's just now getting into golf and he lives on a golf course. And so he's walking around, he's picking up all these balls in his free time. And he was like, Cooper, like, I know you play golf. I have all these balls I have, and they're all pro V ones. And he's like, should I play pro V ones? Because my swing speed is only like a hundred miles an hour with a driver. And I assume he's, you know, watched golf channel or read golf digest or something and read one of these, uh, articles by a ball company that says, you know, you should buy this lower compression ball for lower swing speeds. I went ahead and told him, no, like just use the pro V one. It's mostly in my opinion, a marketing gimmick that you should buy a lower compression ball for a lower swing speed. Um, but what is your thoughts on, using lower compression balls if you have lower swing speed? Um, yeah. So, well, first off, I would tell him if he's got all these free balls, I would use the free balls before I would, before yeah. I would spend money on the pro V ones. I think a lot of it is, you know, the, the difference that you're going to see as a high handicapper with, with any ball is obviously going to be less of an issue. So, you know, spending, spending top dollar on a tour quality ball if you are only hitting it you know 180 yards and you're not really generating enough spin for it to really matter it probably doesn't make much difference so i would say you know if he's got the pro v1s and he's and he's been finding them then go ahead and use them but i don't know that i would tell him to go out and spend money on pro v1s at as as a beginner golfer um you know, all the golf balls now, I feel like they're pretty, I mean, they're all, they're all excellent, right? You know, and, and the best balls have that perfect combination that you, that you can hit it long and you can still spin it as much as you want to, but it's just a matter of finding, you know, finding a ball that works for you, that you don't mind, you know, that you're not kicking yourself too hard if it goes into the woods and you lose it. As far as lower compression goes, I always think lower compression is always a better idea as the weather gets colder. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if that is, you know, I haven't really tested it. It just seems like that always makes sense to me that if the weather is nasty, uh, I think a lower compression ball can be helpful just to sort of get a little more out of it and, and just have a little softer feel. But again, that's sort of more of a personal uh, personal thing. I have a, I have a video planned on, on the channel that, uh, actually, uh, I think Keenan's going to help me out with. I don't even know if I've mentioned it to him yet, this one, but 
looking at golf balls and, and temperature. So uh, I can I can get back to you on that. Perfect. As far as uh, golf balls go, obviously compression changes things a lot, and someone or doesn't necessarily change things a lot, but like spin, those types of factors will change how uh, a ball flies, etc. And so sometimes I know like people find waterlogged balls and uh, they, they don't know it's waterlogged and the ball flies funny. And most, most amateurs, uh, who aren't that elite, uh, they won't notice it, but the higher level you get, the more people notice things as far besides golf balls, when it comes to golf clubs, how can a lot of times, you know, amateurs get fit into a set and they don't realize, you know, something's a wrong with them at the outset or B something's wrong with them later. I've had driver head Cooper and I both have had driver heads that have gone dead three wood heads that have gone dead. And if I wasn't friends with people that had that experience, I would think, Oh, my swing's the problem. Like one, what sort of issues are, do you oftentimes see where something was a fit wrong or B just goes wrong over time? And, um, second, as far as like diagnosing them, what's, what sorts of issues should someone be looking at in their set and say, you know, this one might not be on me. This one might be on the equipment. Okay, so here I'm going to answer the second question first, and then hopefully I'll remember the first one, or you can guide me back to it. Uh, but as far as figuring out if something is wrong, so one thing I always recommend is that you know anytime you go and play golf, just like if you were a you know if you were a pilot, you go and you walk around the plane and you inspect everything and you you know make sure everything is where it's supposed to be. I think it's always a good idea to, you know, look through your clubs and just make sure that everything seems to be right. You know, simple things like, is there a, a gap between the, between the ferrule and the hosel? Or like we talked about before, you know, looking, holding the club, looking at it going down the line, down the shaft from the grip to the head and looking and rotating it and seeing, um, is the shaft bent? You know, things like that that you don't necessarily notice when you just pull it out and set it on the ground and hit it. But if you sort of have it in your mind to be looking for these sorts of things, then it's going to be easier to spot them. So I would definitely say that obviously the way that golf clubs are made now, because they are so thin with the faces specifically with drivers and fairway woods, um, but also with irons now, because I, I see a fair number, I mean, not a lot, but I've seen more, a surprising number I would say for me at least is that you end up getting faces that crack somewhere and that's I mean that's when you were talking about a, a, a dead head that is pretty much usually what the culprit is is there's some sort of there's some sort of bond failure either you know it's usually in those in those seam areas between I think the different parts of the driver head because they're all made up of you know four or five different pieces uh, but that is usually where something goes wrong. And, and oftentimes that's going to correspond to a change in the sound of it. Um, I would say that's a pretty easy way to tell. Uh, but again, just sort of examining it, you know, looking at the driver face. I've had irons brought to me where, where you know, down by the bottom groove, you can see that the head completely, uh, the face completely sort of caves in. And Again, if you just set it down behind the ball and you aren't really looking at it, you may not notice it. But if you hold it up to your face, like a foot away, then it becomes more apparent. So those would be the kind of things as far as if there's an actual issue, structural 
mechanical, we'll say, issue with your clubs. As far as things that for fittings go, then we start to get into a whole different can of worms. Um, because it's, you know, the problem with fitting, and I say this as someone who fits people, but, you know, your fitting is basically you trying to put somebody into a makeup of golf club at a precise moment in time in a precise set of, in a certain set of variables. Uh, so they are usually, you know, they're oftentimes hitting into a screen inside. Uh, so the lighting may be different, you know, depending how they're swinging that day, you know, things can change and not even just how they're swinging that day, but how they are swinging, you know, when they hit their first 15 balls of the day of the fitting to when they hit their 115th ball of the day, you know, things change, your body changes, we are not robots. And so, you know, I think everyone has to sort of keep that in mind. That's always been one of my big things about fitting is these ideas. And I see this more often than I like to see, but there are certain fitters out there who fit people into very specific setups and sort of try and claim that, you know, this is the perfect quote unquote setup for you. This is the perfect head, the perfect shaft. This is exactly, you know, this is that there's only there's only one key to unlock your golf game. And this is, this is that key. And that's just not, it's just not how golf works. It's just not accurate. So I think the important thing with any fitting really is to understand and be aware of when you go to a fitting, just paying attention to what types of things influence you more and make more of an impact on your game. You know, so it's not just, Oh, the fitter says X head and Y shaft. I don't know why, I don't know, you know, but the numbers were good. You know, what, 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 what was the weight of that shaft? You know, what are, what are the, the specs of that shaft that are important? What was the loft of the head? What, you know, those sorts of things matter because you can take that information and you can translate that both to, you know, whether it's you're making that purchase decision that day or down the road, or, you know, you get the driver and you're thinking about fairway woods or, you know, cause ideally your entire set should sort of be, there should be a flow there, right? From your shortest club to your longest club. That's always one of my big things is you want everything to sort of flow, be it in the length, be it in their static weights, be it in, in the swing weight sort of feel to them. You know, you want everything to sort of have a nice smooth progression. So there's not any random club there where you pick it up and all of a sudden it feels like, well, this feels way different. And I think that's one of the most important things, at least in my opinion, is to make sure that all your clubs have a, you know, they play as a team, they, they complement each other. So that's kind of a good lead into my, my next question, which is I have a prediction that over the next three to five years on tour, you will see less and less three woods being in play. And the reason for that being is, is that a three wood for most tour players would go around 280 when they would carry their driver 300 and their dispersion left to right on the driver, maybe 65 yards, their dispersion left to right on the three wood, maybe around that number, maybe a little bit less. And so 
if you're going to be hitting a club shorter, but the same amount offline, it's kind of an obsolete golf club. Right. And I've experienced this in my own game. I'm curious to see if you have seen people take out their three wood for that reason and what solutions have they found if they have done that. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, this is one of those things that's sort of a case-by-case basis, but but you always hear them say, specifically on tour, that that the three-wood is, is debatably the hardest club to, to find one that works for you because they're trying to find, they want something they can hit off the tee to a certain distance and they can get good, you know, penetrate, penetrating ball flight, but then they also want to have it that they can, you know, hit it off the deck and, and carry it and land it soft. And so it's a... It's a tricky combination. It's you know it's asking a lot from a single golf club, but uh, I do think yeah, in a lot of cases people are finding different options. Whether it's you know a higher lofted, more like a four wood type of club that makes a little more sense. Um, but I don't know. It's 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 like you said. If your dispersion is equally is equal whether you're hitting a driver or a fairway wood, then then where's the real benefit of having that fairway wood, at least if you plan on using it off the tee? Um, There's just not very many holes in the world where you are forced to hit it exactly 280 yards. Um, it's usually the only reason people try to hit the fairway wood is to hit the fairway. Um, but that doesn't really seem to be the case when you look at statistics right no definitely agree yeah it seems like the drivers are are so dialed in in general and they're for most people so they're easier to hit at this point than than a fairway would and so you know most people are just going to automatically unless there is a a hazard or something that physically you know stops you and you have to throttle back then it seems like it's driver all day long that concept that you mentioned of, you know, a marriage of two poor uh, or trying to do too much in just one club is something that one of our former guests, Wilkin, out uh, tweeted out on Twitter the other day. He said that uh, he was going to go like his life's work essentially is to get rid of the three wood because it serves essentially no purpose. Uh, and that, that, and uh, I know him, he himself would say like, that's not exactly true, but essentially like, it's very limited use cases where I end up using a three wood. Most of the time it's either driver or it's a hybrid or it's an iron. And part of the problem is that, you know, trying to put too much functionality into one club. If you're trying to replace a three wood without actually using a three wood, exactly like Cooper has found that he has like a 16 degree hybrid in his bag and it gets like pretty close to what a three wood would get to, but it's easier to hit off the ground. It flies pretty close to the same. Um, and all in all, like when, if it, if he's blocked off, off the tee at 280, it's good. And most of the time, like you're not going for too many greens where you're having to hit three wood, especially when you think about like how the ball has to land to going into the green. Most of the times it doesn't make too much sense. What sort of options, if someone came to you and said, look, like I haven't hit my three wood in four months. Uh, I don't hate it, but it really serves no purpose in my game. What would you add to that upper level of the bag that might give them something that they could use in their game more rather than just have a club sitting there taking up space? Right. So 
Yeah, I, I mean, the two options are going to be either you go with some sort of hybrid, uh, low lofted, you know, 16, 15 degree hybrid, um, which I would definitely say is going to be an option for some people. But is, you know, once a hybrid gets down below 17 degrees, there's going to be a definite a definite population that aren't really probably going to see much of a benefit out of that. It just starts to get low. Now, if if you're strong enough and you've got the the speed for it, then it can be a good option. Like it sounds like it is. But again, I wouldn't necessarily rush everybody into that option uh, because it is, you know, once you start to get those extremely low lofted clubs, uh, it does require some more speed. So then the other option would be, well, if a three wood isn't work, then, then maybe you move into, again, something, a four wood or even a five wood and just go, you know, as a driver five wood, because, uh, you know, I think five woods in general, you see them popping up, you see them pop up on tour, depending on the, on the week and depending on the setup, uh, a fair amount. And so, you know, again, it's a little bit shorter. So it's a little, I, I don't know, I haven't looked at the exact numbers as far as dispersion goes with five woods, but I feel like it's a lot tighter when it comes to five woods than three woods. Uh, but again, you know, if you have a five wood or maybe you have a five wood that's adjustable and you crank it down to, to, you know, 17 or 16 and a half, something like that. And, uh, and play with an option like that. Uh, and then of course the, the other option would be to just go more of a straight utility club, uh, and go again, extremely low lofted, sort of more of the one iron idea. But again, uh, that's going to depend on the golfer. And that's clearly in most cases going to be more of a T only option. You're not really probably going to be wanting to hit a, a 14 degree or something, you know, utility iron out of the fairway, unless you're playing in Scotland. So, yeah, I've really, um, enjoyed having that super low lofted hybrid and under the right conditions, I can still hit it out of the rough which i you know as you mentioned couldn't do with the one iron or probably the three wood but i had another um i've been thinking another thing about my club setup and it's started about a couple months ago i i went to the course um playing like normal and then i discovered i didn't have my 60 degree in the bag and so I get come across, you know, I, I'm start, um, I miss a couple of greens. I have to hit like a flop shot and I just pull my 56 degree out and I'm like, I'm able to hit every single shot that I hit with my 60 with my 56 degree. And, um, it made me think of a few years back, um, in the U S amateur final four Cohen Trollio, he made it all the way to the final four at Pinehurst without a 60 degree. And that place is nearly impossible around the greens. So I am honestly really considering taking out my 60 degree just because I feel like I lean on it too much. And if you know what your limitations are, you really don't need a 60 degree. So what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Uh, so, yeah, I think way too many people have those high lofted wedges in their bag and don't need them. Like, like you said, I mean, if we're talking about amateur golfers, weekend golfers, you know, most golf courses aren't really going to require you to hit those kinds of shots. You know, you don't have those sorts of setups. Nobody's tucking pins, you know, 
three paces off of a bunker because you're trying to not have six hour rounds at your public golf course. Um, but even as a, you know, a better player, you know, the, the more loft you put on a wedge, the more difficult it becomes to hit, you know, just the simple fact is the more loft it has, the, the harder you have to swing it, the longer you have to make your swing in order to hit the ball, whatever distance. And so the longer your swing gets, the more that opens the door for different issues to come in. Um, and I think this also, I did, I did a couple, I've done a, I will call it a series of videos basically where I look at this idea of, of changing the shafts out in your wedges in order to uh, drop the ball flight down a little and increase the backspin. Uh, and this is, this has been done for a while. This was uh, explained to me by a guy by the name of Howard Jones. But uh, the basic concept is that when you swing a wedge or you swing any golf club at impact, in theory, you have forward deflection where the club shaft has bent forward a little bit. It increases the loft a little bit. And so, so you get this forward deflection, you get more loft on the iron or the wedge. And what you find is the higher the wedge loft gets, the more the ball flight, the more the trajectory goes up, but the spin actually goes down because what ends up happening is the ball just sort of, uh, sort of bounces off the face. You know, these modern golf balls, they don't compress as much. They don't sort of stick onto the face and get that rotation. And the higher the loft gets on the club, the less ability you have to actually compress the ball and get that spin. So, you know, in your shorter clubs, your eight, your nine, your pitching wedge, you have a certain amount of spin that you would expect from them. But when you start to get into those 56, 60 degree wedges, all of a sudden the spin numbers don't correspond anymore because the ball is just sort of glancing against the face and then popping up in the air, but with very little spin. And anytime you get that situation where you've got, you know, the ball sort of floating around in the air, it's going to be less exact. You know, you're not going to have, you know, that's where you get the case where you start to see things like flyers and things when in one case you may catch one with a lot more spin and then another one, it sort of flutters out there and all of a sudden you've flown the green by, you know, 15 yards. So I think, again, with the higher lofted wedges, that becomes more of an issue. And, you know, again, it depends where you're playing, but unless you are, unless you find that you need that extra loft, which again, you can take a 56 or something close to it, open it up. And assuming you don't have to, you know, assuming you don't have too much bounce on that wedge and you have to open it up on some sort of hard pan lie where that, you know, the design of that wedge might hinder that. And there you would maybe want to see a, a 60, but in many cases, especially if you're hitting out of thick or rough, things like that, then a 60, there's no real, you know, there's not really a benefit. If it's thick, rough, you can hit a, a 56 just as easily. That makes sense. I think that Andrew Rice actually did a study on that. And I forget whether it was launch angle or dynamic loft, but essentially the optimal amount was about 45 degrees, uh, which isn't, which isn't that surprising uh, when you think about it as far as how the as far as getting the most spin goes, because it's kind of like shooting a catapult. And for the most part, like if you get it right in that, if you, sh if it's too straight, then 
it's going to go straight up and down. If it's uh, too flat, uh, you're shooting something, it's going to go essentially directly into the ground. And similarly, when it comes to spin, if it has, if you have too much loft there, there's not going to be, uh, there's going to be too much deflection and too much of that force is going to be lost. And that's essentially what hitting a golf ball is and the changing of lofts is the change in the def- amount that the ball is deflected, uh, which is a weird way to look at it. But there's an optimal amount of deflection for spin, it sounds like. And uh, when you're in that 60 degree to higher and higher range, it's not necessarily what you need. Uh, so that is that's cool to note. And I th- we only have two more questions left for you. So uh, I'll lay them on you one at a time as opposed to two at a time and make them really long. Uh, you talked about a lot of what we talked about today has been about gapping, like, all right, I'm going to get fitted. Like, I want to make sure I'm getting my gapping right. I want to make sure this, I want to make sure that a lot of people, A, haven't been fitted for golf clubs. Will Knout, who I mentioned earlier, he won the Byron Nelson Award uh, this last year. It was the top golf, number one ranked D3 golfer was uh, is going to play in the Byron Nelson next year. And we asked him, like, what do you do club-wise? Uh, and mind you, like, he's getting his PhD in statistics from Columbia, Carnegie Mellon kid, like, smart kid. He's like, yeah, I've never been fitted before. I just kind of worked it out. Uh, and so if he if he hasn't been fitted for there's plenty of other people who haven't been fitted before. And I think it's super easy to say, hey, like, I'm going to go to golfsmith back when it was around. Hey, I'm going to go to uh, – club champion. I'm going to go to golf tech and not saying those places don't do a great job. And there might be people there that do well when it comes to a fitting, what should people be looking for as far as a fitter goes? Like what should they expect a fitter to talk about? What should they expect to like, how will they know they're being like, what are some like general rules of thumb to make sure, Hey, like I'm kind of be fit, getting fit in the right direction and not just one getting like put into stuff that's going to make them more money and not make me better. Right. Yeah. So I think there are two, there's two metrics when it comes to fitters that I, that I sort of look at. And one is the, the knowledge level going from, you know, someone who's been doing this a long time and knows what they're doing to someone who just sort of calls themselves a fitter and you know, may or may not just sort of look up at the screen and, and have a sheet of paper that basically has a list of, you know, if swing speed is X, then launch angle should be Y and, you know, just sort of paint by numbers, let's call it. The other element is, is honesty, quite frankly. And there are, I think, plenty of examples out there. And I've had plenty of people tell me, all kinds of stories uh, about fittings that were not necessarily, uh, you know, did not necessarily have the, the golfer's best interest at heart, like you said. Um, and so those are the two different, you know, those are the two things that I would look at for any fitter. And as far as figuring out what kind you have, I mean, what I have always told people on my channel is I think in order to get the most out of any fitting, regardless of your level, whether you are base amateur or elite, high class, world-class player, 
you need to come in and have done some homework beforehand, you know, have some basic understanding of not just things you want to look at, but some basic understanding of, you know, what exactly is in your bag right now? You know, what is, what are the lofts in your irons right now? What are the shaft weights that you've got right now? Things like that. Because if you don't know that and you just get up and you start hitting a set of irons and then somebody gives you something different, you know, maybe you see 15 yards more carry or, and you know, whatever it is, whatever parameters you're looking for in order to make a decision. But if you don't understand why that's happening, where that's coming from, you know, it's very easy to just sort of be led into whatever the fitter maybe in some cases wants to put you in as opposed to, oh, if this is why that's happening, well, we can also look at this club or this club or this shaft or this shaft. So that's, that's one of my biggest things is if you're going to go to a fitting, if you're going to spend the money on the fitting, um, I think it, it just makes sense that people do just do their homework, just sort of have a basic, at least a basic understanding of what you're coming in with. And maybe, you know, you don't need to know exactly, uh, you know, what club you were wanting to hit or, you know, you may or may not have a set of a list of shafts or heads or whatever that you're wanting to, to try out, but, but at least try and have an idea of what kinds of things you're wanting to experiment with, whether it's going from a hundred and, you know, 130 gram iron shafts and trying 105 gram shafts or trying something where the long irons have more aggressive lofts any of those types of things, just sort of have a, have a game plan and have some information under your belt before you go in. Because if you just go in, you know, starry eyed and, and just saying, I don't care what it costs. I just want the, you know, the best quote unquote thing, then, you know, don't be surprised if you in some cases get fit into a combination that is, you know, somewhat obscure and probably extremely expensive. And, you know, so that would be, those, those would be my, my best uh, recommendations before you go to a fitting. Again, unless you have, if you've got personal references, obviously from people who have been to a certain fitter and they can actually say that, you know, this fitter was great or this fitter was not great. Um, it gets, I, it gets a little tricky and, until you're really in the fitting, you won't necessarily know. And a lot of golfers won't know even after the fitting necessarily if they haven't done some homework first. Um, but that would be my, that, that would be my best tip is to do some homework, make sure you have an understanding of where you're at right now and, and have a game plan at least. So you can kind of, I think it's always better for the player to sort of lead or steer the fitting versus the fitter steering it. Mm, that's good. I, I appreciate it. So Adam, the last question we ask every guest is if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? And in your case, you're a fitter here. So one, we ask you that question, but two, we also would ask if you could tell a junior golfer one thing about fitting, what would it be? Okay. Uh, as far as going back and myself, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. I think some golfers honestly benefit from having tons of information. And then some golfers, like you said, you know, see ball, hit ball. They don't know what their set makeup is really. They don't, you know, they just sort of, they've used the clubs long enough and they figured out how to make them work. And that's the thing about really good golfers 
elite golfers is honestly, you can take a golf club and hand it to an elite golfer and it could be completely wrong. It could be wrong on every spec in the book, but a really good golfer is going to be able to figure out how to make that club work. Now, ideally that's not what you want to have happen, but it's, it's true that, you know, better golfers are going to be more adaptable uh, to equipment. And so, you know, it's just going to be, there's a balance between, you know, having enough information and understanding what's, what is important and then maybe having too much information. Um, as far as junior golfers and looking at junior golfers at, at an elite level, uh, things that I would say I would, I would want to keep in the back of my mind. Uh, I would say first off, obviously this goes for any golfer, but don't necessarily just look at what tour pros are doing when you're trying to figure out your set makeup, right? You don't necessarily need to have uh, extra stiff 75 gram driver shaft tipped an inch and a half uh, because, you know, whoever on tour is using it. Uh, that's, you know, make sure your make sure your club setup, make sure your equipment is right based on both your game, you know, and, and where, and where you play it. Like we talked about the 60 degree wedges, you know, if you're playing golf and you never are in those sorts of places where you need those clubs, then, you know, then it doesn't make sense to have it in your bag at that moment in time. You know, I would say that's, uh, so that's something. And then I would also say, you know, again, looking at what tour players do, it's not always a fixed set of 14 clubs that they bring to a, an event, right? Depending on the course, depending on the conditions, they're going to be switching things out. Maybe they have a three wood one week. Maybe they have a utility a different week, five wood. Maybe they have an extra wedge. Maybe they play around with, you know, maybe they have different bounces, things like that. But again, just sort of understanding that really kind of where you're playing, what kind of golf you're playing, let that in part dictate what your equipment looks like, what your set makeup looks like. Perfect. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Where can people learn more about you, find you on social media, all that stuff? Yeah. So I've got two YouTube channels. Uh, the first one is mobile club maker golf. And that is my channel basically at this point where I focus on club building and club repair type of content. And then I now also have Elite Fit Golf, which corresponds to the name of the new business where I have the fitting studio and I have all my repair shop and custom build shop, all that stuff. Uh, but I also have Elite Fit Golf, uh, which is my other YouTube channel where I is where that is going to be focusing more on, again, fitting equipment specific, uh, you know, different kinds of clubs. Uh, different styles of head shafts, things like that. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram at uh, mobile club maker. So people, if they have questions or things like that, that seems to be a pretty good way to usually get in touch with me is, is through that uh, Instagram. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple podcasts, so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. As always, 
feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at the tournamentcode.com and cooper at the tournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper into what it takes to play elite tournament golf. Thank <laughs> you.